Hello, and welcome to From the Bibliophiles, a science podcast discussing how storytelling succeeds in communicating difficult science concepts. I'm your host and interviewer, Kenna Castleberry. If you're a new listener, you can find our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and many other places. Be sure to give us a five-star review if you like our show. And if you enjoyed today's episode, like it and share it with your friends. Today's guest is Dr. Helen Scales, a marine biologist, writer, and podcaster. She is the author of the Guardian bestseller Spirals in Time, the New Scientist Book of the Year Eye of the Shoal, and the children's book The Great Barrier Reef. Her newest book is The Great Abyss, which came out in July of 2021. This interview discusses her second newest book, The Eye of the Shoal, as well as her book Poseidon's Steed, which covers books on fish and seahorses. You can find all her books and work at www.helenscales.com. That's H-E-L-E-N-S-C-A-L-E-S.com. Hello. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm really good. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing just fine. So my first question for you is a really simple question. Pretty much just what made you want to write this book as far as just, you know, your adventures or was it kind of putting past memories into a book? I'm I'm just curious what your motivations were. Yeah, so I guess this book came to me. It it's it was a few years really in the in the kind of gestation of it, given that um you know, I've dived and I've been in the ocean for many years now as a marine biologist and, and I'm working in conservation. So the, the fish were always around me and they, they were always really what drew me into the underwater world as, as a marine scientist. Like from the first time I ever really put my fins into the water, it was the fish that were really mesmerizing to me. So I've always known that they, they for me, are, are what's really captivated my, my imagination and my fascination in the, the underwater world. And so I guess, so for me, they've always been there. And then as I kind of progressed more towards being a writer and trying to capture the underwater world on the page for readers to to experience, I, it just kind of made sense to me that fish would be a topic that I would write about. But I guess fueled also with this increasing realization that I experienced as well, which is that, that fish generally do have not such a great reputation as as species of, of wild, beautiful, interesting animals compared to other things that live in the oceans, like the beautiful sea otters and the dolphins and the whales, which are also beautiful. But I just kind of feel that there is this there is this difference, this different attitude towards the fish, these cold-blooded vertebrates that live in the ocean. And I felt like I wanted to redress that balance a bit and show people why I certainly think that they definitely deserve our attention and our interest and our compassion more than we really kind of historically, I guess, have given them. Clearly, that totally makes sense. And that kind of leads into my next question, because in the books you have, or in the book, you have stories in between each of the chapters that come from mythology. And I I think from my perspective as a reader, I saw it as you giving these stories and implying that humans have interacted with fish for centuries and centuries and centuries. And I'm curious, you know, how did you pick these stories? So the idea with the stories is I wanted to, first off, 
find, as you say, like these connections between humans and, and fish that have gone on for centuries. But specifically, I was looking for stories that don't necessarily involve us eating the fish. Uh, and there are plenty of stories out there, plenty of traditional tales and folk tales and so on that revolve around this very important relationship between humans and fish, which is one of, of food and nutrition. And I, I understand that. And I think that is very important. But I really wanted to go beyond that and see and actually show that many cultures have have a, a more complex relationship with these creatures over time. I mean, many of them may be founded in this idea of them being important animals for us to eat. But I do I wanted to try and capture this other sense of what these animals can be. And so I just started looking around. I mean, I looked through sort of books of animal folk tales and just hunted around. I asked friends. So, I mean, for example, one of the stories is um, from ancient Egypt. And I was just talking to a friend of mine who happens to be an ancient Egyptologist. And she's like, well, hey, I've got a pretty cool fish story if you want. So she sat down and she told me that story. And basically the version in the book is the version that she told me. And so so really what I was trying to do was, yeah, I was grasped like the other facets and the other angles that we find throughout human history um, as people have seen fish and wondered what they are, maybe pondered their, their powers, their sort of mythological powers these animals might hold in, in uh, controlling the weather or being these powerful, scary beasts, sometimes useful, sometimes friendly, but a whole different range of personalities have been uh, sort of attached to these animals. So that was really what I was trying to do is kind of capture this range of sort of associations and ideas that people have had about this big group of animals that we call fish that live in this world that we don't live in and that we we kind of wonder about and you know cast our minds into this big huge space and the fish I think are just one of those inhabitants of the oceans that people have pondered on for a long long time and so I was yeah I had a, I had fun looking around different cultures and finding these different aspects of the fish's personalities and then our thoughts about them kind of written into these these traditional stories over time. It was good fun finding them. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I bet. It sounds like quite an interesting research project. I'm curious too in your research with the fish stories, did you find that there were more, and this could, there might not be a correlation, I'm just curious, did you find that there were more fish stories of either eating, hunting, or just the stories you have in your book with more kind of island cultures or more just with coastline cultures? I'm just curious if like there are fewer stories with inland, you know, landlocked countries than islands. Yeah, it's a good question actually. I guess I didn't really think about necessarily where those stories were coming from in that sense. I'm, although I guess I was probably more drawn to the the ocean based stories which naturally would be the island based cultures as you say and 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 cultures that have got a really long uh, a long history of being very closely tied to the oceans and to the coasts so I guess naturally I was kind of drawn to those ones. And I confess I probably didn't spend as long looking at landlocked countries that I'm sure have their own stories based on freshwater fish and rivers and lakes and so on. A couple of them actually are freshwater. I think there's a story from an African story about a river-based sort of sea monster fish that, that swallows up this this young woman and, and she lives inside its belly for a while before emerging and being this kind of powerful woman afterwards. So I guess it's a bit of a mix between freshwater and marine, but really I was mostly focusing on the oceans. Um, but I think 
it kind of calls to mind a little bit this the previous book I wrote as well, Spirals in Time, which was about mollusks and seashells. And, and I was really surprised then as well to find this really pervasive belief in the different ideas of what a seashell can be to a human, you know, this idea of it being a kind of icon of of life and death and all these very important things in human lives but in in places a long long way from the ocean where these things actually grow so and I, I think the same thing probably is the case for fish that that they do have a really a really far kind of reaching influence away from the coast and from from the islands but also I have to confess I do find those coastal and island-based stories you know the south south the, the pacific-based island stories so so wonderful and so kind of evocative of that place that I'm, I'm really drawn to those too. So I've got st stories from Japan, places like that, where they've got a really interesting, I think, really interesting relationship with the ocean. So I am, I am drawn to those ones. Yeah. <laughs> sounds lovely. So just kind of going a little more broadly with your book, and this might be just kind of a basic, almost dumb question in a sense. The, so your title is The Eye of the Shoal, but you talk about schools of fish, and I'm curious, is there a difference between shoal versus school, or are they the same thing? Not a dumb question at all. Um, it's a very good question. And I think, I mean, it depends a little bit. I, actually, when I was writing the book and proposing the title I Have the Shoal, and some people said to me that maybe the word shoal even isn't that widely known in some parts of the world as an idea of, like, that actually just means a shallow piece of the ocean, which is another word for, you know, use for the word shoal. But in terms of a fish shoal was less commonly known, but we went with it anyway, and hopefully people can kind of <laughs> get that idea. But I think generally... I mean, I don't think this is necessarily kind of defined anywhere, but I think that generally a, a shoal of fish is considered to be a more of a kind of a general aggregation of, of, of fish, and they can be of different species and so on. And But that a schooling species, and actually kind of means that I actually kind of got the title wrong a bit, but because the idea of the title is this sort of this um, a circular spiraling group of fish around you and that you're right in the center of it, the eye of the shoal. But actually, I think I'm probably a bit wrong with that and that a, sh a shoal could be something a bit less organised and that a schooling fish is when they're really swimming together. And that extraordinary phenomenon, which which I find really, really kind of just hard to imagine, even though we understand some ideas of how fish are able to swim in synchrony and how you get this extraordinary coordination, just like you do watching like a murmuration of starlings, of birds in the sky, and how maybe from, from fa some fairly simple rules of of leading fish and then followers knowing how far to be behind that leader and keeping their distance and these sort of un, unspoken rules of how to swim together that you can have these emergent shapes and coordination so that they look so a school of fish almost looks like it's there's a sort of mind to it and that it has it's sort of a creature that's thinking and deciding which way to go when, when really it's a coordination of of all these individual animals swimming together and reacting to each other but so quickly that we don't see that so so actually i feel kind of bad now that you've brought it up i think maybe it should be the eye of the school not the eye of the shoal but never mind we'll stick with the title <laughs> oh i think it's a wonderful title and and part of my curiosity was i hadn't heard the word shoal before and and oh, I was like, okay, I'm yeah. curious what, like, possibly the book will explain it. And of course it, it does. It just did it in a way where I thought, well, it, it could also be school. And, and so that's why yes. I asked that question. But no, I, I really like the title. And it kind of reminds <laughs> me, like you said, kind of the eye of a hurricane, in a sense, where you're exactly. in the middle. Yes. Yeah. So in your book, of course, you have this really nice series of memories where you're talking about diving and being with fish. And it's it's for me, it's very nice because I've done some diving, but... 
I'm, I've always been afraid of the ocean in a sense because it's so big and vast. And so it's nice to get that perspective of you, you know, doing the work for me and describing <laughs> all these wonderful scenes. And in your book as well, you, you talk a lot about the relationship between humans and fish and how, you know, overfishing is a problem or endangered species need to be conserved, things like that. And I'm curious, just in your own opinion, doing this research for this book, do you think that our relationship to fish has worsened recently? Or is there a way that we can kind of work on improving our relationship to fish more in a symbiotic and helpful way than what we've been doing? Yeah, I think I think what has changed on a global scale in the last few, I guess, decades really, is, is what we're doing now is, is humanity, is is fishing the oceans, is exploiting the oceans in in such a way that it, on such a vast scale that the individual animals are really lost in that. By and large, I mean, there are obviously exceptions, but by and large, so much fishing now is in, uh, done at an industrial scale. Huge ships going out with enormous fishing equipment, whether it's nets or lines even, even if it's individual lines. I mean, long liners can be such enormous, long, long, kilometers of, of monofilament line that are paid out behind one one vessel with hooks coming off either side that the the volume of of animal fish life that we're catching is so disconnected from these an, these animals as individuals so it's very hard for us to sort of even imagine that there's a fish on the plate in front of us that was this animal that swam through the oceans and that had its life and, and that was caught and captured and processed in a certain way that maybe isn't fully in line with what we now understand about the ability of fish to say suffer. I mean, this is one big issue, I think, is that we really, as a, I think, generalizing, I think people generally sort of put fish into a very different part of our minds than we do all the other vertebrates. And we would never even imagine doing to fish what we do, uh, doing to say, say cows or, or, you know, sheep or other animals that we eat in the same way, treating them in the same way we do fish, like pulling them out of their environment and essentially letting them suffocate on deck. Uh, and this, I think, yeah, the scale of it is something that we it just means that those animals blur in our minds and it's very hard to connect to these being, you know, this is the, the biggest, the largest scale of any wild harvest of animals that goes on today, really. We, we're fishing trillions of fish from the oceans, more than we ever have, but we've, we've really lost sight of the individual animals as a consequence. So, so I guess one thing I really wanted to do with the book is, especially towards the end, is to try and redress that balance of trying to think of these creatures as wild individual animals again and not just this amorphous idea of fish this other vertebrate life that we we don't care so much about because for whatever reason various reasons they're cold-blooded they live under the ocean we can't see them most of the time they don't have expressions or make sounds that we can relate to so being compassionate about these animals is much more difficult than say cetaceans and warm-blooded mammals that we feel much more connected to because they're more like us fish are very dislike us in some ways but also they aren't i mean we do have we do share an awful lot from them we are essentially fish we all evolved humans and all, all the rest of the vertebrates evolved from fish so they are, you know, we share an ancestry with them. But I think we've lost that ability to be compassionate to that particular group of the vertebrates family tree. And so I really think we need to think again about that and, and, and overcome these assumptions that fish have less ability to 
feel pain and to suffer and to think and to be smart and intelligent and and to live a really complex life down beneath the waves just because we can't see it and we find it difficult to grasp what's happening down there I think we need to find ways of of finding out more about and, and really thinking more about what fish get up to and somehow let that feed into how we treat them on such a huge global scale as we do at the moment through the fishing industry that we have. It's a tricky one. It's no simple answer to what we should do, but I just think it's now is a good time as we're learning more about fish biology and there are scientists who really are breaking boundaries in terms of understanding what fish's lives are like. That now is a time to really think carefully about what we're doing with them and, and maybe looking for alternatives and, and thinking more carefully about what we do to these trillions of animals that we're pulling out of the ocean with all the other effects on the environment as well, of course, that that's happening too. So, yeah. Sure. Absolutely. My last question for you is, might be a difficult one to answer in a funny sort of way, but I'm curious, what do you think your favorite fish was to research or see or write about in the book? Ah, such a good question. And I never have a good answer. This is the annoying thing (laughs) (laughs) with this question, because it's such a good one. And I should really, you know, have a very good answer for it. And it's so hard to choose because I did get to, I guess one of the things in the book I wanted to do, and and I did, was to show readers that there are so many different types of fish. I guess I was slightly shocked having previously written a book about mollusks and seashells. Uh, And there's a lot of those. There's like maybe 200,000 species of mollusks. But on the whole, I mean, they are varied and there's lots of variation amongst that group, but maybe not as much as the fish. So we've got maybe 30,000 species of fish alive today, but they do so many different things and they live in so many different places that, that really there's just this incredible variety of of animals that we we call fish from you know the enormous whale sharks down to the tiny wee things that live in uh, freshwater swamps and sort of mature in a matter of weeks down to the you know enormous greenland sharks that take maybe 500 years that live for maybe 500 years and take take a century or more to reach maturity so the fish really encompass such a huge range of things it's really hard to pick one but if i am forced to let me think i i guess for me actually one of the things I really did enjoy with this book is uh, is uncovering more about the fish that live in places that I've never been and I probably never will, which is down in the deep sea. And some of the things that are going on down there are just extraordinary. In particular, I, I really enjoyed researching fish that are able to make their own light, the bioluminescent fish. And for me, I guess it captures one of the things I wanted to get across in the book as well, which is that these vertebrates that we call fish, this this whole huge part of the vertebrate family tree, have evolved abilities that we just don't see anywhere else in the vertebrates. So one of those things being the ability to make light. And fish are really good at it. Just like a couple of thousand species of fish that are bioluminescent. And they put those lights, mostly these are species living in the deep sea where it's dark. And it makes sense if you have lights that you can make for yourself. And you can do really cool things with them. So one of my favorites is a tiny wee shark called the velvet belly lantern shark. As a mature shark, it would sit in the palm of your hand. Pretty unusual for a shark 
shark. Most sharks are really big. You know, they're born at at least a meter long. They're kind of pretty, pretty big animals. But this one is a small one. And it has this ability to light up its belly with blue light, which we think gives it camouflage as it's swimming through uh, what we call the twilight zone in the deep sea, where there's still a little bit of blue light during the day trickles down. And as they swim through the deep, they would be casting a shadow, a silhouette beneath them. So if any predators were below them, they could look up and say, aha, there's a nice tasty shark swimming above my head. But actually these lights kind of give them this cloak of invisibility and blends them into their surroundings, this this light that's coming down, and they slip away without being seen. So I think that's probably one of my favourite fish. I really did enjoy learning about that. It's pretty cool. That's, yeah, that sounds amazing. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and such a surprising find as well in the deep. It's, you never know what you're going to find down there. Oh but... my gosh, yes. So, I mean, it really led me on. Like, actually, right now I'm working on my next book, and that is all about the deep sea. I guess the Ooh. fish gave me a taste for this strange world. So I decided to leap fully in, and now that's the whole topic of the next book. So, so many strange things in the deep. It's wonderful. 